Hey everyone, this is Chad. I appreciate you taking time to listen to my sermon. It will start in a moment. But first I want to let you know about something you might find beneficial. For every sermon series, we produce a booklet full of thought-provoking questions, extra Bible passages, family activities, and discussion starters, and personal challenges. We give these out to the people in our church, but now we want to make them available to you. To get it, just visit the series page on our site and click on the series booklet button. For this series, the page is creeksidebiblechurch.org slash quietwrath. I really do hope you'll take advantage of this. They're a great resource. And just one more thing. If this sermon is impactful, would you do me a favor and email us at respond at creekside.me? That would be awesome. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that you will learn and live more fully for Jesus. So we're preaching, we're we're looking at anger, and funny thing happened this week, and that is that, or two weeks ago almost now, I guess, right after I preached that first sermon series on anger, I uh, was playing basketball, and then I punched a wall, and I thought I broke my hand. And actually, I just left the brace off stage, but I was in a brace all week having to explain to people that I punched a wall. Now, here's the thing about that story. That, that sounds like a moment of just utter rage, right? And people who have played basketball with me know that I, I, I punch walls a lot. I don't know how else to say that, but it's not like a moment of rage. If there was any sin really involved, it was probably the sin of pride. I just wanted people to know that I wasn't playing up to snuff. It really wasn't a, a moment of anger. Uh, it was more of a moment of trying to fire myself up and uh, trying to show people that I'm better than this. However, that said, it illustrated something for me. I actually had people that knew what happened question whether or not I did it just to have a sermon illustration, like, oh, you punched that wall so that you could talk about it in a Sunday service. But it it really, if you were there, you wouldn't even know that I punched the wall. I just kind of went like this and then went back on defense. But uh, it did illustrate something for me, and that is that uh, we have an understanding of what we said in the, and what I said in the first sermon in this series, that, that anger is foolish, right? Like, let's say it was a moment of rage because people do punch walls out of, uh, you know, rage. They would understand immediately after they punched the wall and went to the doctor and he said it might be broken, how foolish anger really is, right? They would, they would grasp the foolishness of it. Uh, but in my efforts to minimize the anger that was involved, which really, I would be lying if I said it was like a huge moment of rage. Then I would just be using it as a sermon illustration. But to minimize the anger when I told the story, it just reminded me of this. And that is that while we see the foolishness of anger, you know, pretty clearly, because we see the results of what can take place, uh, it is difficult for us to see in ourselves the sinfulness of anger. Now, if you're not a church person, sin for a Christian is just basically not doing things the way that God wants them to be done, not doing things that are in line with the character and nature of God. Uh, So to say it in a different way, I think that we can see the foolishness of anger, but it's sometimes difficult for us to see how bad anger is when we are the ones expressing it. 
Now, we know, and we've talked about this a couple of times in the last couple of months, if you've been around, forgive me, but it bears repeating. We know the bad things that come out of anger, you know, like yelling or fighting or uh, punching holes in the wall. I didn't punch a hole in a wall. I totally lost the fight. But, you know, uh, but we, we get those kind of symptoms of anger and we go, oh, those things are bad. War is bad. But what we, what we don't often remember is that just the anger itself does not align with what God has called us to or what God wants for us. And that's because we don't grasp, I don't think, the gravity of anger. And, and here's kind of the big idea for the morning. There is a deep theological component to anger. There is, a, there is something deep and profound going on when we are angry that I'm going to venture out on a limb and say uh, that none of us except for me studying for this sermon have ever thought about before. And we're going to see that in the words of Jesus in a sermon that he preached that called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest record of Jesus' teaching in the Bible. It's from Matthew chapter 5 all the way through Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is, is teaching on just a wide variety of subjects. And they're all kind of centered around how life should be lived in his kingdom. How life should be lived if you're a follower of his. And, and the section that we're going to see our passage today, some people have called it the antithesis section. Because Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount in that language, may have been how you described it. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And some people even claim that really Jesus is giving the antithesis of the Old Testament. But that is dangerous theological territory because we don't believe and Jesus even says that he did not come to abolish what was written down in the Old Testament the first part of the Bible but instead Jesus came to fulfill it and so what we see in Jesus is not the antithesis in the Sermon on the Mount of what the Old Testament says but something else and that is that Jesus is giving an antithesis to the, the modern, and by modern I mean his time, interpretation of what the Old Testament said. And he is taking it to a whole other level. He is taking it much deeper. In fact, he is taking it deep in the first place because he is taking the focus off of the external action and placing it on what's happening in people's hearts. And I think that what we'll see here in just a minute is, is so important because he talks about anger. But just that idea that anger is something that happens in us. And we go, that's not a big deal until it comes out of me. But Jesus is going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've heard it said, and you may have heard this said in Christian circles actually. You can be angry, just don't sin in your anger. But I say to you, Something entirely different. First Samuel 16, 7, just as a way of setting this up, says something that's so important, I think, when it comes to the topic of anger. It says, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I think when we look at this passage and we think about anger, that we need to just remember that, that God is not just looking at what happens outside, God is looking at what is taking place 
on the inside. Now, in this, just for fun, I just want to teach you this, and that's when you look at the, the Sermon on the Mount, especially this antithesis section, there's this pattern. It goes Old Testament command, like something that's been written down. God has provided us with this command. And then a modern interpretation that is causing people to apply that command in the wrong way. And then Jesus' reinterpretation, right interpretation of what the Old Testament has said in the first place. And I think as we read this, you'll just see that pattern. And if you want to go home and read some more things around Matthew 5, 21, you'll see, you'll see kind of the same idea. But here's what Jesus said. He gets right to the point in Matthew 5, 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So there's the command, right? Thou shalt not murder. If you have ever been in a Christian home or a Christian environment or you know anything about church or you know anything about like government because people fight to get the Ten Commandments to stay on the walls of our courthouses, if you know anything about that, then if you know one thing that's in the Bible, you might know Thou shalt not murder, right? Like that is something that we have all heard before. And so even we today who don't know the Bible as well as people at Jesus' time, and especially who don't know the Old Testament as well as the people at Jesus' time, even we go, yeah, I have heard that it was said long ago that thou shalt not murder. And anyone who murders shall be subject to govern or to judgment. But actually... This is not part of the law. This is the interpretation of the people at the time. The command says, thou shall not murder, uh, but they have added to that command. They've interpreted that command and said, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. It's not a bad idea, right? I mean, we agree with that. This interpretation is not a bad interpretation. In fact, there's lots of things in the Old Testament that declare if a person murders somebody, then they need to be punished for that murder. In fact, they should almost always be punished for that murder. And, and there's just a few rare instances of taking another person's life uh, that, out of malicious intent that are, uh, are not punishable in the Old Testament. But it's not strictly in the law. But I want you to have that in your heads. This interpretation that they have given is not evil. It's not bad. It's not inherently wrong. It's just not full enough. It's not big enough. It's not deep enough. It doesn't, as we saw in that first Samuel passage, it doesn't look inward enough to fulfill really the ways of the kingdom of Jesus, the ways of being a follower of Jesus. And here's how Jesus interprets it. And by the way, if Jesus interprets it, it's the right way. This is the right interpretation. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Wow. Like That's different than the way that we interpret even the New Testament today, right? Because again, I want to say this again because I've heard this a lot in, in my church experiences. You can be angry, just don't sin in your anger. That's the common prevailing idea and understanding of what the New Testament says. And I think if Jesus was here today, he would say, you have heard it said 
Be angry, just don't sin in your angry anger. But I say unto you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Wow. Now here's one thing that I think is very valuable just to, to think about as we go, did Jesus really say that? Don't you feel that a little? I mean, if you're being honest, it's like, well, it's Jesus. If you're a Christian, it's like, Jesus, I have to agree with that, but I don't think I agree with it, but I, I agree with it. You know, that's kind of like, really, like I'm gonna be in the dangers of judgment if I'm angry and hell if I call somebody a fool. I mean, that seems like you may be overshot there, Jesus. Getting a little carried away, let's take it back and just say, you know, be angry, but don't sin. But the first the first kind of idea that I think is is paramount to what Jesus has said is that anger really is the first step in murder, right? And we talked about that when we looked at the story of Cain and Abel a couple of months ago in a series on family, and you, you should go back and, and listen to that uh, sermon if you haven't. It's on our website, but, but Jesus, or God has this conversation with Abel before, with Cain before he kills his brother Abel. And he doesn't say, don't murder your brother. He says, hey, 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 don't be so angry because you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation. And he doesn't listen to God and he kills his brother. And so you have to think, Jesus, in some just small way, has that in his mind when he says, hey, when you're angry, you're now in danger of being judged, of judgment." Because when you are angry, you have taken the first step, and I know it seems like a, 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 just a, a small step, but it's the first step still, nonetheless, towards this thing called murder. But I think it goes beyond this theologically. I think it's even deeper than that. In 1 John 3.15, we read, Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has life residing in him. Now, this is something we know, right? Anger over time leads to hatred. I think we would agree with that, right? If you stay angry at somebody long enough, or if, in a different way, if you are angry passionately enough, then over time, you are going to develop a hatred for a person. I, I didn't have this in my sermon notes, but I'm picturing it in mathematical equations as I stand before you. And uh, you can take the word anger and you can add it uh, a bunch of time to time, right? Just a bunch of anger. And then over time, you're going to hate a person. Or you can just multiply it by like 100, and that's probably going to lead to hatred too. So either the amount of time or the amount of passion that is involved in anger is ultimately going to lead to hatred. That would be the second step towards murdering somebody, right? I am mad at you. I am passionately mad at you. I am passionately angry with you. I feel wrath towards you. I feel wrathful towards you. And now I hate you. And the next step from hatred, and we've talked about this before, is that you no longer want a person to exist. And I think that's why John says anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. Because you are now saying in some ways when you hate somebody, I don't want you to exist anymore. Thebible.org says this, to hate, usually implying active ill will in words and conduct. That's how that word hatred is 
uh, is seen. That's the word angry. Uh, and, and what it shows us is that there's this progression in anger. And it goes, I'm angry. I hate you. I don't want you to exist anymore. And then most people will stop on the next step. I'm going to scream or yell or belittle you or tear you down or whatever so that I feel in some ways like I am ruining your existence. But then the, the next step, and this only happens sometimes, is to take a life. And I think what John is getting to and what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that we are in danger of judgment when we're angry because we are, this is the big theological point of the day, we are in some ways going against the very creative and salvific work of God when we are angry at people. Here's what Mike, Michael Wilkins of the Life Application Commentary says. Jesus here gets to the source of murder, which is anger. Anger alone is a violation of the law and was the original intent of the murder prohibition in the Old Testament. When we are inappropriately angry with people, we attempt to take their identity and value as God's creatures away from them the ultimate form of which is the physical act of murder. Now, I thought about this, right? Because I'm not the biggest skeptic in the world, but I'm a little bit of a skeptic. And just because Michael Wilkins says it in a book doesn't mean that it's right. We can all understand that, right? And, and I thought about this. Like, what transpires when I'm angry with a person? Like, what takes place in me? What is the feeling? What... What does it lead to? What is, what is an argument? And what is saying something mean to people? And what is a, a fight? You know, what is that? What, what does that come from? And wh what's driving that? And if I could look far deeper than most of us ever want to look, what is at the very core of those experiences that I, like you, experience sometimes? And I think he's right. When I am angry, it becomes an some weird way, my goal to tear at the very fabric of God's work in a person's life. The Bible tells us that all people have been created in the image of God, which means that all people, even if you don't feel like this sometimes, have inherent worth and value. And when I am angry, what is taking place inside of me is a desire to tear away from, to tear down the creative worth of God that gave inherent worth to people and it may just be you know yelling at a person it may just be saying something mean it may just be not talking to them so that they feel like I don't value them but but it, it all I, I think all every response I've ever had to anger I think is in some ways tearing at the work that God has done both the creative work and then the work of Jesus, whom we believe as Christians, came to die on a cross because he loved people so much and wanted all people to be saved. And when I am angry, inside of me, the feeling that is indescribable, right? I mean, try to describe anger in your head. Yeah, anger, you know, I'm mad, I'm angry. We just use synonyms. But I think the feeling is one of a desire, for the work of God to be lessened in a person's life. The creative work of God when he created people to have value and worth. And the salvific, the salvation work of God when he said, look, you have so much worth and so much value. That I'll step out of my perfect place in heaven to die for you. So when Jesus says like, hey, 
if you're angry, then you're in danger of judgment. I think he's saying, look, theologically, your anger is just a desire. It's probably a masked desire. It's a desire that you rationalize because they've messed up and they're stupid. And, you know, if they would just act like you wanted to. It's a masked desire, but it's still a desire to tear at the value of a person that God has given value to. You see, it's easy to look at anger and go, it's foolish, but it's hard to look at anger and go, it's evil. Because we don't look that deep and we don't go, what is anger? But, it, I mean, Jesus tells us that it's dangerous and so it forced me to look a little deeper. But when we look deeper, I think I'm right. I think I can tell by your eyes that I'm right. That it's a desire inside of you. And we don't think of it in terms of desire except a desire to hit somebody or hit a wall or, you know, something. We just see these outward desires. But it's a desire inside of you to tear at the work of God in a person's life. Now, for me, that changes the whole entire conversation. It changes the paradigm of my mind. Because no longer can I just say, and I think Jesus gets right to this, no longer can I just say, well, don't kill somebody. No longer can I just say, well, don't yell at somebody. No longer can I say, well, you know, I, I guess I shouldn't be in an argument. No longer can I say, don't punch somebody. I have to say, what's wrong with you? That you want to tear at the very work of God. And as a Christian, I believe, <laughs> I believe deeply in the work of God. I find my self-worth in the fact that God created me in his image. Not much else. I also find love and peace and joy in the fact that Jesus, whom I believe was God in human form, stepped out of a perfect place in heaven and came to earth to die for my sins, for me, and for you too, but for me is usually how I think of it. He died for my sins. And when I'm mad at my wife or somebody who messes up on a Sunday morning, I, it's really just a desire to tear down that work that I think so highly of. I've said to you already this morning that I'm an expressive worshiper. I'm an expressive worshiper because I've stretched myself, as I encourage you to do, but, but in large part because I love Jesus a lot. You know, I just like him. think pretty highly of the work he's done in my life. And when I'm angry, it's a desire to tear at that work in somebody else's life. And that's bad. And so the, the paradigm shifts immediately and we go, wait a minute. It's not just evil to express anger. It's evil to be angry because in some ways I am fighting against, even if just internally, I'm fighting against that which God is for, that which God has done. And I think that's what makes what Jesus says next makes so much sense. Anyone who says raka, raka is a transliterated word, which means they just put it into our language in the other language. They don't change the language. They just type it in our, uh, in our letters. It's a transliterated term, meaning empty-headed. So it's a personal and public affront. It is a name that you would call a person, right? Like, you stupid face. Not a very good example, but you, hey, dummy, you know, that type of thing. That's what this is. Now, 
And our culture, I mean, especially if you if you ever a middle school boy, you know this. Like, we almost use name calling as affectionate, and and we just kind of are used to that kind of culture and that world and, and things like that. But uh, but if somebody is serious in calling you a name, it, it cuts deeply, right? I I had a nickname for a while in middle school from friends, and and it hurt me deeply. It was not a nice nickname. It wasn't. Uh, they probably were just doing it because they were middle school boys. These people were my friends, and some of them good friends. But it really hurt me. And my dad finally yelled at them, and they stopped. Um, and, but it hurt me deeply. And if you're actually called a name, and somebody means it, then it cuts at your self-value and your self-worth. Am I right? And it makes you question things. If it goes on long enough, like, could God really love me? So even in our society, it's a big deal. But, but for a first century Jewish person, for a Jewish person at all, it would have been a bigger deal because names were a major part of their identity. In fact, our daughter has an English version of a Hebrew name. It means God sees. Uh, when she was born, it was exactly what we needed to hear, and we needed to hear it probably every day, but, uh, but it was the right time, and when we saw that that name was a form of a Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is like closer to hazel, meaning God sees, uh, when we heard that name and that meaning, it was like instant for us. It's like that has to be the name because that's what we needed to hear here, and with our uh, upcoming child, we have uh, searched desperately through Hebrew names because because Hebrew often has significant meaning and they've given significant meaning to their names, especially as you read them in the Bible. And so picture that world, right? Where name is a big deal and God would literally give you a name based on what you were going to do in life and who you were going to be in life. And now have somebody come up to you and call you Raka or dummy or stupid or whatever. It's not just like in America where it hurts because of the intent behind it. It, it hurts them because it's actually tearing at, at the very core of who they are. And Jesus says, here's what you need to know. If you say Raka, it's answerable to court. It's a big, big, big deal because you have... You have now not just taken the first step towards making somebody not exist by being angry and wanting to tear at somebody's value and worth. You've actually gone forward and said, I will tear at your value and your worth. And let's get it in our heads. Let's just make this crystal clear. You don't have to call anybody a name to actually do this thing. You can do it with your tone of voice. You can do it with not saying anything at all. I believe you can do it with the way that you look at a person. I, and this makes me sound like I'm such an angry person playing sports, and I used to be an angry person when I played sports, but every person in this room right now that has played sports with me will attest that I'm not an angry person anymore. But I had a girlfriend in high school uh, say to me, if you ever look at me, and she, this was dead straightforward, if you ever look at me like you look at people on the basketball court, I will break up with you immediately. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know I did that, you know? And then I saw it on film, and I was like, oh, I get it now. Uh, but you can, you can do these things. You can tear at a person's identity out of anger without ever saying raka, without ever saying you're an idiot. You just treat them like one. 
And, and then Jesus, he's going to even take it a step further. He's going to say, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fires of hell. Now, this is a bigger deal in, in Jewish culture than it is today because you fool and raka, they, they kind of sound uh, similar to us, right? It's like a, a name that you would call somebody. Uh, but to call somebody a fool in the first century was bigger because it was connected, uh, foolishness was more connected to morality than it is now. And, and so you are not now just tearing at a person's intelligence or, or, or you know how they were created. You're actually tearing at kind of who they are as far as morality goes. Wisdom, in fact, as it's recorded in the Old Testament, eventually uh, is a word that is used in the New Testament for Jesus. And we see as we look back at the Old Testament that wisdom was the embodiment of some way of of who Jesus is after Jesus is born. And so uh, you fool is is actually, it's the Greek word where we get the word moron. And, And I think that a little bit helps it sink in because we might call somebody a fool in jest or whatever, but I don't, I don't know that I've ever called anybody a moron. I don't know. And so that would seem like meaner, right? Like it's a step forward. Now I'm not just changing your name. I'm actually trying to cut you down in a, in a very real and, and evil way. So Jesus says, hey, you call somebody a moron, then you're saying that they are somebody who is morally against God and you are in, notice this, you are, this is big, you are in danger of the fire of hell. Or he actually says more literally, you are in danger of Gehenna. And we're going to pop a video up here that I shot this week. And uh, so hopefully that video will come up. Is it coming up on the screen? Getting a blank. Oh, there it is. So uh, the weird thing is, you may know this if you've ever driven south of this uh, city and you've gone to Salem. Uh, there's an incinerator south of us, and it's now my new picture of hell, and it's in Brooks, so uh, not that far off. Um, but uh, this is actually what Jesus is describing. He uses this word Gehenna. I can't even make this up. And Gehenna was a place just outside of the city, and if you were to go back in time, there had been a, a time in Israel's history where idols have, had been built there, and so false gods were worshipped. And so when that was taken away, it was seen as such an evil place that they started throwing all of their trash out there. And then they decided to light the trash on fire. And so Jesus just uses this as a, an example, as an illustration for what hell is. I actually never want you to be able to drive past Brooks, the Brooks exit ever again, without thinking hell is bad and I shouldn't be angry. That's why I stopped to record the video and got my shoes all muddy. But this is a big deal. Like Jesus says, if you ever, if you call somebody a moron, if you call somebody a fool, then it puts you in danger of Gehenna, of Brooks. Don't tell the Brooks people. But that's what it does. And Jesus ends with this bang because he is, I think, he wants you to take it very seriously. It's the same thing in the passage that I already read that basically John has said to us in 1 John three fifteen: anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. When you are angry, you are in fact tearing at the very core of what God has done in creation and in salvation. 
And God looks down upon it and sees it as very, very bad. I just kind of looked this up because I'd heard something about children growing up in angry homes. And and I thought, that's a great way to illustrate this. But uh, I think that a child who experiences anger a lot, and I think this goes right with what makes anger so bad, really has an uphill battle to climb. And it's a big deal for us who are parents, especially parents of young people. Uh, But uh, here's just some of the effects. Children of angry parents are more aggressive and non-compliant. Children of angry parents are less empathetic. Children of angry parents have poor overall adjustment skills. There is a relationship between parental anger and delinquency. The effects of parental anger can continue to impact the adult child, including increasing degrees of depression, social alienation, spouse abuse, and career and economic achievement. It's kind of sobering, right? But I think it just gets to right at at the heart of what Jesus is saying. And it's this. Where anger is present, the work of God decreases it is torn down it is hurt it is lessened in the people's lives who experience that anger and with that in mind it makes so much more sense for jesus to say hey if you're angry and you express that anger you're in danger of hell if you're angry and you express that anger you are in danger of of the government of being judged and if you're angry at all then you're in danger of judgment Two things I want to have happen, really. And the first is you go, this is, I just want you to walk away going, I want me to walk away, I want us to walk away going, anger is bad. And now you know why, right? Before you would have said anger is bad because, you know, I might get in a fight or I might say something mean or because it will cause me to hurt people or because anger started wars and anger leads to violence and all those things. But no, 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 no. Not the expression of anger is bad. Get this in your head. Anger is bad. Because anger cuts at the creative and salvific work of God. Now, there's just some things. The other thing is is this. First, you can find a positive identity in Jesus. And maybe some of you have have been the, uh, taken the brunt of anger for so long that you're like, my identity has been cut down and I don't sense my self-worth and I don't feel loved and I can't experience peace and I don't have joy anymore. Well, there's fantastic news. Jesus is greater than all of the anger that you have experienced, than all of the anger that has come at you. And in his word, he declares that even if you've had people angry at you your whole life, you still, you still were created in his image, which gave you inherent value. And that value is so great that he came from heaven to earth to die for you. And if you accept his gift of salvation where he died on a cross and he rose again, then you can have peace and joy and love like you never thought you could have before. And maybe some of you this morning, you need to hear just that. You go, yeah, I already knew what anger could do because I am a living testimony to what you just said. And I want you to know that Jesus created you and he died for you. And all of that anger that you have experienced and the effects that it's had upon your life can be erased. But that same story matters if you are an angry person. 
Because the gospel tells us that when Jesus died and rose again, he has broken the chains upon our lives. And I think there are Christians that I know who go, well, I'm angry. I'm just human. It's just normal. And the gospel story, the story of Jesus says, look, hey, wait a minute. You're not just human anymore. You are a human who has now been indwelled by the Holy Spirit because you have been forgiven for your sins and you have the power to remove anger from your life. Those first century Jewish people who heard this sermon, oh man, I would have hated to have been them because they would have gone, uh, okay, I don't know what to do with that, Jesus. Like it's, it's pretty much like saying, hey, I want you to bench press a million pounds. I, I can't. But if you're a Christian, then you have supernatural power and the power of God's work in your life and you can overcome anger. That's a big deal. You will never, ever, ever, ever overcome anger by saying, I'm gonna stop being angry. But you can overcome anger by the power of the Holy Spirit and that's exactly what we're gonna talk about next week. So I, I hope you'll be here for that. And then, and then oh, oh, and by the way, when it, when it comes to that, you need a savior and, and there's, you, you think, well, I'm not that angry or whatever. And, and I just want to get to this. All of us need, 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 need a savior because all of us have been angry. I think I've alluded to this in sermons before and I'm not sure why it stuck with me so much, but it, it did. And uh, my in-laws watched this kind of, uh, I don't know, what, what's a mockumentary that is... Uh, that is not funny. I don't know if that has a word, but uh, like this dramatized kind of deal about the Green River Killer. And I saw parts of it as I would come in and out of my in-law's house. And, uh, and the, at the very ending of it, the detective who was a Christian man and had given his life to solving this murder so that, not so he could be a hero or anything like that, so that the parents could have some closure and figure out that their daughters didn't run away or whatever. He stops as he's walking out after they catch the Green River Killer. And he turns around and he says, how evil on a scale of one to five do you think you are? And the Green River Killer thinks for a second and he looks at him and he says, a three. And then the Green River Killer looks back at him and goes, what about you? And the guy said, a three. And it was a profound moment in this serious mockumentary or whatever they're called because it reminded me of a truth. We all are varying degrees of evil that need, we all need a savior because of that. And if anything can demonstrate that, it's anger. Most of us, hopefully all of us, are not murderers. If you are, let us know. Um, <laughs> But most of us, almost all of us, hopefully all of us, are not murderers. Most of us are, are not spouse beaters. Most of us don't fly off the handle all the time. Uh, some of us have anger fairly well under control. But Jesus here says, look, look, in my kingdom there's no room for any anger. If you've ever been angry before, you have cut at the very work that I am here to do and you need a savior. I think that's the last point Jesus is making. You need a savior. And I would offer to you, this is so easy to do. It's so easy if you're not a Christian to say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. I'm here at church today. But you've been angry. 
and you need a savior. And if you are a Christian, it's so easy to go like, like weeks and think, I've lived pretty good. How big a deal is that Jesus thing, you know? And you show up here on a Sunday morning, not even that thankful for what Jesus has done, just out of obligation or ease. But when you pause and go, every time I've been angry, I have fought against, even if just inside, I have fought against the work that God has done for others, then it makes the sacrifice that we're going to celebrate in just a minute a big, big deal. And so I hope this morning that you will you'll find your positive identity in Jesus. And I hope if you've ever, uh, if you struggle with anger, you'll, you'll turn to Jesus. You'll come back next week and, and, and you'll look at the passage together next week that we'll look at. And, and you'll find your hope for conquering anger in the Holy Spirit. And I hope that if you've ever been angry, you will remember how great of a gift or know for the first time what a great gift salvation truly is. Let me pray that that will take place in you. Lord, I just... I just thank you, Jesus, that, that you give us this passage. Um, uh, not even because it, it reminds us to remove anger, but because, Lord, those of us who have experienced anger coming at us, um, we already know the truth and the depth of what you've said here because we know how much that anger has hurt us. Even like if our spouse isn't saying a word to us, we're still cut down by anger, God. And, and so I thank you, Lord, that you didn't just, you know, leave us with our kind of modern interpretation, be angry but don't sin. But you, God, instead gave us something so much better. And I do pray, God, what I just encouraged. I pray, Lord, that if anybody does not sense worth and does not experience love like they should, that they would turn their eyes to you, God, and, and that you would undo the effects that anger has had on their lives. And God, I pray for people that are here this morning to think, I'll never conquer anger. I'll never, I'll never get past this. I have an anger problem. I pray, God, that they would find their hope in you and the power that you have brought upon their lives. And then I ask, God, for all of us, for unbelievers and for believers alike, God, that we would understand, recognize, value, what an incredible gift you have given us. When you went to a cross, Lord, to die, not for all the times that we, that we fought people, not for all the times that we cussed, not for all the times that we said mean things to people or, or yelled at people, God, not for all those times only, but for every time that we were just angry on the inside. You died for all of it. That's awesome. And so I pray we would value that gift of salvation. We would celebrate that gift of salvation in a, in a really uh, beautiful way always, Lord, but especially in just a few moments as we take communion. I pray these things in your name. Amen.